0: Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, if you'll please stand with me. If you're new this morning, understand this isn't our normal uh, custom. Our custom is to go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, address the scriptures in their context. Uh, I'm between, I, we just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and there's quite a transition into chapter 8, so I thought now would be a good time to address really what is a primary philosophy of, of um, the discipleship of Calvary Chapel. And I know that's controversial, but um, that's just the way things go, all right? Let's pray. Father, um, I just thank you, Lord, for your word. And I have to confess that even for myself, I don't always like what your word says. But as I've grown in my understanding of you and my experience as a believer, I've grown to understand that um, you are all-knowing, you're all-wise you know the best course of action to get the best results, and, and you are to be obeyed when you command, and uh, it's for your glory, and it's for our good. So Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts this morning, and uh, even uh, among those who disagree with me, I pray that, uh, that your word would speak to them, and that at the end of this, they would just be encouraged. So just grant your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Um, So if you're new, I did discuss the potential of of, um, uh, annihilating Sunday school, and uh, it may surprise you that actually uh, the people of Calvert Chapel are almost divided down the middle. Some, about half, at least those people that have spoken with me, uh, said they would be just fine with it, and then the other people are opposed. And... uh, but I want to make sure that we just settle some of the tension now. Uh, We're not currently planning to abolish all Christian education at Calvary for Children, but we are, we must, uh, change the philosophy of it. Uh, We must, if we're going to actually honor the Scriptures. And uh, so whatever we do provide will be purely supplemental in order to reinforce what parents ought to be doing Uh, in their homes throughout the week. And uh, so we will be providing something specific uh, along with that in regard to equipping parents, uh, discipling parents to disciple their their children at home. Um, As I said to first service, it's important to um, thank everyone that has engaged with me this week uh, as they've demonstrated godly maturity and um, you have brought, you know, your concern for children, your objections to abolishing Sunday school, and your arguments uh, for keeping it. Uh, this blesses me because um, the responses that I got um, demonstrated maturity. It demonstrated that people are thinking, that they're concerned. And uh, but what I appreciate the most is that everybody is motivated by the same thing, and that's love. Everybody here loves the kids and we want what is best for the kids. We don't agree, perhaps, on the best course of action to train our children up in the admonition of the Lord, Um, but I'm praying that together that we have more unity uh, in, in regard to what the scriptures teach on this subject. Understanding that our culture, church culture, has indoctrinated us in a certain philosophy, and I am challenging that philosophy. I'm saying that that philosophy is wrong. And I, I want to talk about it more this morning. I want to uh, address some of the, uh, the what-ifs and things that people have brought to my attention. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that every concern uh, presented to me this week are the same concerns that the elders and I have had uh, for years. Uh, we've been talking about this for years uh, up to this point. And uh, also understand these are the same concerns that God has had for children since uh, Adam rebelled in the garden, since sin came into our world. Uh, He was concerned well before us, and in his word, he has prescribed uh, a way of addressing, of meeting those concerns. Also, all of the objections to abolishing Sunday school and all of the arguments in favor of keeping Sunday school are the same objections, they're the same arguments that the elders and I have been giving for years. Uh, and they're good arguments they're, they're by all of us. They're well thought out. They're logical. They're practical. But as I have been engaging with them and wrestling with all of the objections and arguments, uh, I've realized something. Uh, all of the objections, all of the arguments have one thing in common. None of them are biblical. Not a single argument in favor of Sunday school uh, is an argument from the scriptures. It's not an exegesis of the text. It's not coming out of the text. It's something that we are putting in there. uh, And I'm not okay with that. And we also need to understand that every adverse uh, family scenario and every real life example that, that tugs on our hearts and makes our case for Sunday school are all things that the Holy Spirit knew about, but he did not see or prescribe Sunday school as the solution. He didn't. It's just not in the scriptures. I mean, he knew there would be broken families, didn't he? Before Adam sinned in the garden, he knew there would be parents who would not obey him by discipling their own children. He knew there would be single parents. Uh, He knew that there would be grandparents, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles raising children. He knew there would be orphans. He knew that there would be unbelieving children in the world. He, He knew that new people who are uninformed about biblical parental obligations would come to our church. All of which he prepared for and he gave instruction for in his word. And Sunday school just isn't one of those provisions. And so let's ask the question, was the Holy Spirit somehow short-sighted or was he ignorant for not including Sunday school in the ministry of the church? Because if we say that Sunday school is absolutely necessary, what are we saying about his wisdom in this context? If it is necessary, he missed something. And I'm not willing to go there with the one that I call Lord. I'm more apt to say that in his infinite wisdom that he has a better solution to the problem we see in families, uh, in my family, in your family, and the families of our culture. God who not only possesses all knowledge and wisdom also loves all of our children more than we can, uh, more than we do. Scripture tells us that he loves them, loves us with an everlasting love. Also, something that occurred to me As I've been evaluating all of these arguments and concerns in favor of Sunday school, um, I notice that when we make arguments for Sunday school, we typically turn to the most adverse family situations to justify the practice, but the vast majority of families in this church do not fit into that category. And the argument only makes the case for having Sunday school for those extreme situations, not for the rest. Again, the argument does not come from the text of Scripture. And, you know, we certainly have uh, our share of single parents, single-parent families and families that are raising children that are not their immediate children. And I commend them. Um, I am inspired by these families. Okay? I come from one. My mom raised her four boys all by herself. And uh, there's nobody that, in my mind as courageous and honorable as my mother uh, for doing what she I mean, just raising me uh, was enough. Uh, we have... New people coming to our church all the time, and we are not immediately aware of the challenges that they face. And people bring some pretty wild baggage into our fellowship, and our heart is to minister to those families. But you have to understand that all of these same challenges were in the first century, and that is the century in which the Holy Spirit organized, designed the church. And for the church at that time, and for the church of all time, the Holy Spirit has given us His instruction and it didn't include Sunday school. The only method in Scripture for bringing children up in the training and admonition of the Lord is the discipleship of children in the home by the parents or by their parent, by their grandparents or grandparent, by aunt or uncle, whoever they have that is raising them. In the first century, I think it's super important to understand that the gospel, uh, you know, coming into a, a non-Christian culture, because we're a, a post-Reformation post-Christian culture, are we not? This culture has been more influenced by the Judeo-Christian creed than any other ideology out there. We're a product of that. Now, it's crumbling beneath us. But when the gospel was first brought into the Roman Empire, it was the first time everybody, without exception, is a pagan. They're idol worshipers, all of them. And so the gospel coming into that context, you guys, the, the message was completely radical. Read Acts 17 when Paul went to Athens. They called him a, a seed picker. They were mocking him because of the ideas that he was bringing to them. It was, it was the most radical thing they'd encountered. And the church, as a religious body, was the most radical institution the world had ever seen. And then you bring the gospel and the church together, you have the most counter-cultural movement the world has ever seen. And when, when the gospel is accurately represented biblically in the church in America, we are becoming more and more radical our world as it departs from its roots. And so when the gospel came into this pagan world in the first century, what it required of people in terms of repentance and a change of mind and lifestyle, you guys, it's, it's crazy what was expected of them. When a pagan idolater came to faith in Christ, uh, they had nothing to go off of. But the principles that were being taught Sunday after Sunday by the apostles and then the elders and pastors that it was passed on to. Repentance required that every habit and every way of thinking be abandoned. And they were embracing a whole new life, a whole new white way of thinking. So for them, beginning with God, the pagan had to abandon all of the deities, plural, because they were polytheists. They had to abandon all of that and then all of the ways of worshipping them had to be scrapped because it was, most of it was immoral. And they had to radically adopt a total different concept of God and a totally different way of worship. But it it was affecting every way of life when it came to business. If he was a slave owner, he had to view all of his slaves as being his equal. The idea of loving a slave like one loves himself in the first century is insane. It's insane to them. He had to treat them fairly with justice knowing that God would judge him if he did not, Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 4, verse 1, James 2, 8. You know, in that culture, uh, slavery made up about 70% of the Roman Empire. Uh, They were considered less than human. Some philosophers, uh, you know, the the prominent thinkers of the culture said that the gods had created slaves as subhuman in order to serve the superhumans, the, the rest of us, which they meant the rich. That was the way they thought Just imagine the struggle Christianity was for those who grew up thinking this way. And then when it came to marriage, uh, this was, it's, it's just insane. A man had to recognize the dignity of his wife as being equal to his own. He had to love her as Christ loved the church. He had to be ready and willing to give his life for her. He was responsible for contributing to her sanctification by the example and the teaching of the word of God. He had to be understanding of her. He was called to, according to 1 Peter 3, 7, he had to highly esteem her and then provide and protect her. Ephesians five twenty five through eight twenty eight 28 and verse Peter 3, verse 7. This, this was complete nonsense to the Greek mind. Women were useful for their service to their husband, for procreation and for pleasure. So imagine encountering the gospel and all of that being torn away from them. A man's world where he everything was about him. The gospel elevated women. When it came to family, you know, female newborns had to be spared. Imagine such a thing that little girls were disposed of because they weren't worth as much as boys. They were considered a burden to the family. And so it wasn't uncommon for them to kill their newborn baby girls. But Christian parents... Impacted by the gospel, they were to spare them. They were to love them and treat them equally to their boys. Also, fathers who were apt to let their wives concern themselves with the rearing of their children were called to step up to be the godly head of their home and take the responsibility of discipling and bringing the children up in this new faith, in the one that they called Lord. And he was expected to do this without any formal training and without the help of Sunday school. And it, it wasn't by some oversight of the Holy Spirit, trust me. It was expected of slave owners, of slaves, husbands and fathers, wives and mothers to sit under the instruction of God's word in the local church as much as possible. And then throughout the week, teach those things to their children and then, you know, implement them in business, in marriage, in, in everything. Every context of life. They were coming to be, uh, you know, we love the word indoctrinated, but... It just means to be taught. But they were to come to, on the Lord's Day, to the fellowship of the church and be indoctrinated in this new faith. And they were to take that to the family. They were to take it to business. They were to take it to marriage in every sphere of life. So just an example of this in the context of family discipleship. We just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most important sermon. Parents, his sermon contains months of material for family discipleship months i mean just in review of the sermon uh, think about your young the uh, what young people are struggling with today and and just in general training children in the faith uh, there's lessons on true happiness and contentment matthew 5 1 through 12 depression is soaring among our youth today in america There's lessons on evangelism and service, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Lessons on anger and lust. Listen, our children, our teenagers especially, are struggling with this. I know because I'm meeting with them. I'm meeting with them. Matthew 5, 21 through 30. Lessons on marriage. You think our kids need some coaching when it comes to biblical marriage? You better start now. You better start now. Lessons on keeping your word. Lessons on not retaliating but loving those who mistreat you. Any of your children struggle with You know, sibling rivalries? rivalries? Mine never did. I mean, they're just amazing. Lessons on godly generosity, on prayer. Lessons on true piety. Godly stewardship and perspective. Lessons on faith as the answer to anxiety. Anxiety among our youth today, especially because of social media. As I told for a service, for the love of your children, get them off of TikTok and Instagram. Get them away from social... It's not social... Okay, it's, it's cultural indoctrination, and none of it is wholesome. Get their minds away from that garbage and get it on stuff that is good for them. How about, do your, children's need, do your children need lessons on treating others the way that they want to be treated? Matthew seven twelve through 14. Lessons on true spirituality. That, that's, that's at least 14 lessons which could each be spread out over weeks in family worship and discipleship, exactly as Deuteronomy 6, 7 says. Diligently giving your attention to instructing your children in your home is what the text says. And then applying its principles throughout the day, wherever you find yourself. And then as the Proverbs are very clear to instruct us, that when our children stray in any direction away from our teaching, we, we apply discipline. So parents learning the scriptures at church and in their own personal study and then teaching, exemplifying and applying it in the home. That is God's design It's his directive for Christian parents. And understand, it's the same directive for parents who were raised in the faith and like everyone in the first century who had just discovered the faith. When a letter would come from Paul to a local church, the pastor would read the letter to the church. And the fathers were expected to take that information home, to apply it in marriage, to apply it in business, to apply it in the rearing of their children. Just as I Teach the scriptures every Sunday. That isn't just for you. It's for your babies. Because we're to train our children in the admonition of the Lord. What you learn on Sundays from the text of God's word is for training. It's for admonition at home. For us to exemplify and to apply. Parents were instructed in the faith in order to instruct their children in the faith. And you have to understand that abolishing Sunday school is radical to us because we, over the last 200 years, have normalized it, we've institutionalized it, and basically required it because we've lost touch with God's design and His biblical mandate for family discipleship in the home. You see, if I had brought this to you 150 years ago, you may not even yet have heard of Sunday school. It hasn't been in the church for the majority of church history. There's 2,000 years of church history, it's been here in full swing for only about 100 years. It's new, it's new. There's another issue that I, I want to address and that's the, the personal experience of people in Sunday school. And here I'm talking about good experiences. I did get calls and stuff about bad experiences. Those things speak for themselves. It's the good experience that I, uh, experiences that I have to address. A number of people shared with me that it, for them it was just all good. You know, Some were saved through the preaching of the gospel in their Sunday school class. Um, others talked about how much they learned about Christ and his word, how much they grew spiritually in Sunday school. Others talk about relationships with people and Sunday school teachers. Many people have had great experiences in Sunday school, all of which I'm grateful to God for. I'm thankful for all of that. But when it comes to our experiences, and I mean experiences in all things as Christians, we have to ask A few questions. The first one, is our personal experience an argument for orthodoxy? Is what we experience in any context an argument for orthodoxy? Well, we have to say of course not because orthodoxy is what is taught and prescribed by God's word and Sunday school isn't there. Would our experience then be an argument for orthopraxy? Of course not, orthopraxy is what we see practiced in scripture by the apostles and by the early church. So then we have one question left. Would my good experience be an argument for precedent? Would it justify any given practice or philosophy? No. Otherwise, we could make an argument for promoting taverns because someone got saved in a tavern. Now, I found my wife in a trashy nightclub. It's a true story. It was a bar. And she's been the love of my life since. But my good experience does not set... An example or precedent for where young men should find their spouse. Okay. My story of how I met Shandy, that's, that is my experience and it's been a great experience. But it doesn't establish any kind of justification uh, for anyone to repeat it. You see, the end does not justify the means. The result that was secured does not justify how I met my wife. Now that end justifies the means theology uh, is condemned in Romans 3.7. Even when a positive result occurs, Paul says it does not justify the method by which I achieve those results. He says it's about God's means for securing God's ends. And so, whenever our experience yields good results, even though our experience was outside biblical orthodoxy and orthopraxy, it doesn't set a precedent for it. It's just a testimony, understand, it's just a testimony of God's sovereignty and his love. For humanity. He saves people outside, and he has this prerogative, by the way, to save people outside of his prescribed will all the time because he loves people, not because he's trying to communicate a new method of reaching people. You see, a divine intervention of his grace does not call for new orthodoxy or new practice. We find that what God does, he often does in spite of us and our methods. Amen? So we must get it in our hearts that what God has prescribed in his word is best. And that what we as parents are responsible, or rather, and that we as parents are responsible for bringing up our children in the training and admonition of the Lord, regardless of our situation. And we have to get it out of our heads that the discipleship of our children is the responsibility of the local church. Biblically, it's not. Of course, it is the church's duty to come alongside of parents in order to help them, to equip them. It is the church's responsibility to encourage them, especially those new to the faith and those that are in adverse family situations. But it's not for the church to disciple the children for the parents. Understand, that would require the church to overstep its biblical jurisdiction. And it would require the church to usurp parental privilege, authority, and responsibility. You see, every parent who leaves the discipleship of their children to the church, is a, is disobedient to Christ. You see, it doesn't matter what it is. If God commands us to do something and we don't do it, what do we call that? Are we afraid to say that as evangelicals? That if we disobey the clear command of Scripture, it's sin, it doesn't matter what context. You see, the church is never going to be held accountable for what parents are responsible for. So we could um, just do it all for parents, and then parents would have to face God on Judgment Day. I don't know, are you hip on that? Just the church indoctrinating you and in ignorance and say, good luck on Judgment Day. I'm not for that. I'm not. The real question is this, if, if, if we are to be biblical, is how can we as the church encourage, equip, and help, and even perhaps supplement what parents ought to be doing at home? If we are to supplement... Uh, to reinforce what parents ought to be doing at home, we must be certain that that's actually what we're doing and not replacing what parents should be doing at home. As a church, we must always be keeping a pulse on any kind of Sunday school philosophy if we insist on having it. And our philosophy must be clear and it must be regulated. We must ensure that we're only supplementing, that we're only reinforcing and not replacing or substituting a parent's duty before God. If the church becomes the primary discipler of children, we need to repent. And if parents are using the church to disciple their children, the parents need to repent and do what God has commanded. I mean, what if the church was doing a lousy job at Sunday school? you say, that's too bad for my kids. We can't have that mentality. And when it comes to parents who are uninformed about their biblical responsibility, we as the church need to fulfill our responsibility by discipling those parents to disciple their kids, just as it was done in the early church, just as the scriptures demand us to do. Now, I know that um, if, if we, because our plan is to eventually have Sunday school at a different hour than the main service, because we want those kids in here. We want them in here. And I know that that freaks some parents out, the idea of having my small children sit through service and be quiet. It's, it's kind of scary, uh, as it was scary for my wife and I when we realized that this is God's design. Uh, it's a good concern. And by the way, me, uh, all of my elders, and I believe most parents in this church understand that children do not come out of the womb ready for such a thing. They don't intuitively know at three years old that they need to sit still and be quiet in particular contexts. But if you come to first service, you will see a mother sitting with sometimes eight kids uh, from age 12 down to recently born, and all of the children are quiet. All of the children are sitting still, even the two-year-old. How did they do that? And what parents often encounter is other parents that come to to them and say, you're so lucky that your kids are just like that. And the mom is like, no, that is hours and months and years of being intentional, of training my children at home so that when I come to church, or I go to the grocery store, or I go to the bank, or I'm talking to another adult, or I'm on the phone, that my kids know that that context requires me to sit still, to be patient, and to keep quiet. And you know how much of a blessing that is to the parents when they achieve that end? And what a blessing it is to other people? So... If that seems like some dark, black magic to you, uh, but you would like the product of it, uh, please come talk to me. I will connect you with one of these parents that has achieved that. And they would love to sit with you. And I would encourage you to meet with a few different ones because they've all done it in different ways. And if you get a variety, you can go, I like that one, I don't like that one. Let's, Let's try this method. Oh, it didn't work as fast as I want. I can try this other one. I encourage you to do that. Guess who else has done it? I did. I read books on it. I spoke to many parents about it until I started seeing the results that I wanted. Okay, that's how it happens. I personally, Shandy and I, we look at parents that are two or three steps ahead of us, and we go to them and we say, "We like what you're doing here. How did you? How did you get that result?" And we go to other parents. We're constantly being discipled by other parents on how to disciple our kids. There's some models I'm not. I don't. I'm not real fond of, especially. You know, guys that have a lot of girls. The girl factories, I have mostly boys. I do want some attention for the girl because she freaks me out. Okay? I was raised with boys, four boys, and a tomboy. So girls, girls are a trip. Okay? And uh, so anyway, I'll hook you up with somebody, and they'll help you. Okay? It'll be a blessing to you and to everyone else. Let's move on. Okay, I think i got time. So last week, uh, some of this morning, we've spent our time... Mostly appealing to parents to take the responsibility for their families, especially fathers. I want to spend the rest of the time talking about ecclesiology. Now I know it's a big word. Uh, it's just it's it's a Greek word that means church. Okay, so we don't want to say churchiology. So in order to sound intelligent, we say ecle- ecclesiology. And the Greek word is ekklesia or ecclesia. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't care. Uh, Every theologian I've ever listened to pronounces it a little different. Uh, As I told first service, Alistair Begg, who is from Scotland, of course, he's probably saying it right. (laughs) So ecclesiology is just the study of the church, and in that we talk about its responsibilities and all that Christ has prescribed for it. And the church is simply made up of all believers, true believers in Christ, regardless of where they live and when they lived. The church is not the building that we meet in. Okay, nowhere in the New Testament uh, does Paul or anybody else drop the word ekklesia and, and mean a, a building. And it, it can't even mean a building because it means those who are called out. It's always talking about people. Okay? And what constitutes the local church is not, because I hear this all the time, it's not where two or three gather. And people quote Matthew eighteen twenty that says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. People use this as a way of saying, well, I was in church all week because I was with two or three other believers. Um, Please don't take that verse and take a pry bar and yard it out of context. That's not what that text means. Uh, The the context of this verse has to do with being a witness against someone's unrepentant sin. It's, It's not telling us what constitutes the local church. The local church... Uh, as a fellowship, is actually a thing in the New Testament. Okay? It's something that the apostles were commissioned to organize and provide its instruction, its practice. The local church has a government structure consisting of pastors, elders, and deacons. That's 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. The local church uh, has a custom of meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Christ rose from the dead, the pastoral arm of the local church is responsible primarily for teaching the apostles' doctrine, primarily, and then equipping the saints for the work of ministry, Acts 2.42 and Ephesians 4.11-12. The local church is responsible for maintaining fellowship among believers, Acts 2.42 and Hebrews 10.25. Uh, I intend on talking to uh, you know, the people that listen by uh, live stream. If they have an able body, you need to be here. I'm looking at the camera right now. They need to be here because sitting at home is not Christianity. It's not contributing. It's just consuming and it's not okay. Okay, it's not. That's not how God designed the local church. The local church should be celebrating together Lord's Supper, okay? Remembering the very reason that we're saved. And it's guys understand, it's because of the the body and blood of Jesus that I know everybody in this room. Everybody. I wouldn't know anybody in this room if it wasn't for the sacrifice of Christ. Isn't that true? None of you know me outside of that context. It's him that brought us together. Acts 2.42. The local church should be joining together for regular corporate prayer and worship. Acts 2.42, verse 47. When Pastor... uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was writing letters to other pastors, to Timothy and Titus, he said this. He said, I write so that you may know how you want to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Paul says, I'm writing all of this stuff, present tense there. It's not what I've written, it's what I'm writing. So that you as a pastor might know how to conduct yourself in the the fellowship of the church. And so when you look at the pastoral letters, it's, it's about pastors and elders correcting false doctrine, about confronting false teachers, to teach the congregation, to be praying and giving thanks for all men, including government officials, to instruct Christian women to be modest, to appoint qualified men to leadership, to instruct the church regarding the doctrines of demons. It's just heresies. In, all, in, in every area, but specifically in the pastorals, it's regarding marriage. Marriage has been screwed up for a long time. Even regarding foods, because nothing starts a fight like what food you can eat. And old wives' tales, which must have been a big deal back then. They were to teach the, the church good, solid doctrine. The, the word in the, in the Greek is, is what is health-giving. It's good, it's wholesome. And then all of the instruction has to do with teaching older men older women, young men, and young women, and widows. How to discipline sinning leaders in the church. Providing instruction for Christian slaves and slave owners. To instruct the church in contentment, generosity, and above all, 2 Timothy 4, I, he says, I charge you there before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Timothy, that you preach the word. In Paul's letter to Titus, it's nearly identical. We might say that there's about three editions He says, the members of the church must submit to governing authorities to guard their tongue from slander and to remind the church to be diligent in good works and to meet urgent needs. So Paul wrote these letters to instruct pastors on how the ministry of the church should operate. We could also throw in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. It's not pastoral, it's a general epistle that was read to the whole congregation. But please notice that in all of his instruction. In all of his instruction, the ministry of the church consisted of discipling slaves, slave owners, husbands and wives, fathers, older men, older women, young women, young men, nothing younger. The ministry of the church, nothing younger. Biblically, the children are not under the direct jurisdiction of the church. Why? It's because the family was created by God as a separate entity from the church. They're under the authority and the headship of the father. They're the father's responsibility. And when there's no father, or there's a father like Timothy, his father, who wasn't a believer, that responsibility falls on the mother, as it did Timothy's mother, as we talked about last week, as it did my mother, who raised four boys by herself. And if there are no parents, it may fall to an aunt, to an uncle, a brother, a sister, or a grandparent. You know, even older widows were excluded from being cared for by the church If they had family that could take care of them, it was the family's responsibility to provide for those widows. Another verse that is often taken out of context, but it's been applied okay, but it has to do with widows, not with a man taking care of his wife and children. It has to do with widows. Paul said that anyone who does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever, 1 Timothy 5.8. The context of that verse is the care of widows. Now, even though children are not immediately addressed under the responsibility of the church, as we've said, it is the responsibility of the church to equip parents to disciple their children. This is all very important because our culture has normalized a thing that God did not prescribe in the scriptures. Churches, over time, have expanded their jurisdiction and their authority in the same way that governments do. And parents have forfeited their jurisdiction and authority like so many populations do. And they've done it without biblical precedent. And now what has happened, the church expects parents to send their children to Sunday school and to keep them out of the main service. And parents expect churches to take their children during the main service to unbiblical expectations. And what has happened is our our children grow up thinking that what happens in here is for the adults and what happens in Sunday school is for them. And when they get older, this context right here is not church to them. It's not. Church is what happened in Sunday school. It's what happened in youth ministry. And so the vast majority of children have left the church, are leaving the church, and they're not coming back. They're not. The church has invented a method that is not ordained by God. And the vast majority of children raised in that philosophy are gone, and they're not being recovered. You guys, so the church and parents need to wake up because we're reaping the whirlwind when it comes to the next generation. Now, I must say this. I don't know of another church that has so many parents that take the responsibility for the discipleship of their own children. And that's why I said last week, there's no better church than ours to help disciple parents to disciple their children. We have the resources for this, and we have the parents with the experience. I know because I've benefited from them over the last 16 years of being here. I brought a six-month-old with me, and now I have four, and it blesses me that I have so many couples, so many men to be discipled by in the context of parenting. And I reach out to them often. And the more as we as a church and as parents honor God's word in this regard, the more God will be glorified and the more we will enjoy the results. Now, I think at least that at least the majority of you have come to this church with the expectation that I teach and uphold the word of God. That's what I'm doing right now. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to let anyone dissuade me. This is what I'll do. If Sunday school were a biblical method of discipling children, most of you know me well enough that I would push and push and push for it. Okay? But it's not. And if the church does anything at this juncture, as the youth crisis unfolds around us, it should be to return to our biblical roots. It should be to restore parental authority and responsibility. It should be to equip parents to disciple their children, not to do it for them. So what we will be doing here at Calvary is using Christian education for children as a means of discipling parents to disciple their children. We'll essentially provide education for children simultaneously uh, as we disciple parents. We're going to have a Sunday school hour at the same time that is committed to just that. So if I do... Uh, or have, rather, because I'm busy doing other things on Sunday morning. And I think there's other uh, couples that are better equipped than me. But if we did, you know, five weeks, five Sundays worth of how to teach your children to sit still and be quiet in church, wouldn't that be a blessing to many parents? Or how to develop relationships between siblings for three or four weeks? Uh, How to get children to um, obey the first time, quickly, respectfully, happily? John Wiley says, and then... To have your children come back and say is there anything else with a smile on their face and if you've met the Wiley kids they're all very happy kids who adore their parents okay wouldn't that be a blessing to be doing that for parents i will be attending because i still got more work to do i got a 16 year old a 12 year old a 10 year old and an eight year old the eight year old almost needs no training he's amazing so we will use this to, to, to as a supplement for what Christian families uh, are already doing. We want to reinforce what's happening in the home. We'll use it to draw parents out of our culture who don't know any better that we might have a chance to disciple them to disciple their own children, just as the scriptures direct us as a church. We'll use Christian education to provide some level of discipleship for children who have no other resources at their disposal. And we'll use it as an outreach ministry to reach the lost who wander into our church and they do. But we will not provide Christian education so that parents can take their ease or be relieved of their biblical duty. Children should be discipled more at home by the instruction and the example of their parents than they are for one hour a week at church. You will lose your children if you're not discipling. You'll lose them and you won't get them back. Those are the facts on the ground. God knows what he's doing when he says, fathers, get involved, learn the scriptures, incorporate, apply those in the home, be worshiping with your kids, instructing, living by example. We will expect the Christian parents of this church to be growing over time, to be improving over time in the context of their parenting, just like we expect people to grow in all other spiritual disciplines. Isn't, isn't that okay? Please say amen. I mean, I won't throw you out if you don't, but this is biblical, you know. Last service, I... I ask people to raise their hands if they're a parent who's grown in their parenting because of the encouragement and instruction that they've received from other parents in this church. And my hand has to go up. And then over the last four or five months, I've been meeting with some young fathers who had no idea that it was their job to be worshiping in the home with their kids. But now, almost daily, they're worshiping with their children and they are loving it. And they're loving the fruit. One of them came to me and said, you know, I've been coming home and sneaking in the door and I can hear my kids singing hymns. And it blesses them. They're seeing the fruit. It's blessing their wives. They're, they're doing what the scriptures say and they're getting the fruit from it. They're growing in the grace of God. and It's beautiful. So I want to end with that. And um, we'll come back to the text of Matthew next week. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have comments, uh, disagreements, please, as I said last week, be mature enough to come and talk with me, as others have all this last week. And if you believe that you have a biblical argument for keeping Sunday school, please come talk to me. I'm, I'm eager to be corrected. I'm eager. For now, let's, let's stand and um, uh, let's pray. If, is Isaac Howard, is Pastor Isaac still around? I'll find him. Oh, hey, would you join me up here? We need to uh, pray for somebody. Okay, let's pray. Father, we love you, and Lord, I don't want it to be just lip service that we're seeking to be biblical. I want it to be real. I, I want us to be those that are serious about the faith and your, your word and trusting, Lord, that you know best that the home is the place you've ordained as the context for child discipleship training. And you know how to get the ends, the results that you desire. Help us to believe you and trust you with that. And Lord, I pray for Calvary Chapel that we as a church will be more intentional about reaching out to our parents and that the parents of our church will be more intentional of reaching out to other families and being honest and humble and saying, there's a few things I don't know what I'm doing. Would you help me before it's too late? Lord, grant us your grace to do that. And Lord, again, I thank you for my church family. I I just love being a part of this fellowship. Thank you for the privilege. Pray that you'd bless them and lavish your grace upon them. In the name of Christ, amen.